Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas tardes. Okay, hello everyone. Uh, you're very welcome to this uh, trademark podcast. Um, we're here with um, three very good uh, friends and comrades. We're going to sit and discuss um, this tumultuous year that we've just come through. Um, for tumultuous for a whole host of different reasons. Um, and we're going to look at it really from the perspective of the impact that it's had on workers um, and uh, talk about those issues. I have with me this evening Dooley Hart, um, well-known uh, trade union official and um, a, 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 an activist in the trade union movement. Uh, he's here tonight on behalf of his role as Secretary of Craigavon Council of Trade Unions. Uh, very welcome, Dooley. Um, Thanks, Mel. We also have Naomi Connor with us. Naomi is also a trade union official. And she's also active in the uh, women's movement and um, most notably in uh, Alliance for Choice and um, uh, among other uh, things. And last but not least, we have Alice McLarnon, a good friend and comrade from Trademark, uh, who manages the office, keeps us all out of jail, um, but also um, runs the, um, was the, the, the key person in the workers' cooperative movement here in Ireland. Alice is, is a key worker in the uh, Belfast Cleaning Society and has also been instrumental in establishing um, Solid Network, which is an all-earned network for worker co-ops. Um, so you're all very welcome. Um, <clears throat> we're going to open up with a sort of a, a, a round robin on, uh, you know, looking at, at 2020. Um, and, you know, what, what, what were the key events? And, and this, it's, you know, history will judge it as a year that um, changed the world. And probably things will never be the same again. But starting out in January, we were without a government for three years. And then sort of towards the end, the parties got into talks. And uh, in January 2020, a new document was, was released. And uh, it was called New Decade, New Approach, full of hope for wonderful things ahead that a new power sharing executive. And this time we had five parties signed up to it and uh, what they were going to deliver for uh, the people of Northern Ireland. So just very quickly around the, around the table, um, how do you think they've done so far? Julie, what about you? Well, I think, I think we had to welcome the fact that uh, the document brought the, uh, the local executive back. I think, uh, certainly from my perspective, it wasn't a, a success for either government uh, uh, or for the politicians. It was uh, a success for workers who were taking industrial action at the time in order to force the politicians back to the table to resolve that action. Uh, what's disappointing, uh, two things that jump out for me that are disappointing uh, out of a host of issues in relation to it is, one is the lack of any solid commitments uh, around workers' rights and employment rates, they, they only feature uh, uh, in a very limited way as part of the document. And secondly was the lack of uh, a follow-through by, by Westminster uh, on, on, on the finances needed in order to implement the document. Um, 
that, that lack of money, and it's something that our politicians should have resolved before uh, they actually signed up to it, but that, that lack of commitment from Westminster has been extremely disappointing. And what we have now is, is a lot of headline commitments within the document, some of which are, are quite good, but a lack of money to actually resource the implementation of them. And now we're back to picking and choosing stuff uh, that all needs to be done in order to uh, improve the situation uh, within this part of the world. So I, I, I certainly feel that it had its benefits attached to it. It got the, the, the Stormont Assembly back up and running. But at the same time, it has been uh, a, a significant disappointment to date. There's still time. The administration still has a, a period to go. Uh, uh, and therefore, there's still an opportunity there, but I, I think it's an opportunity that's being missed at the minute. So marks out of 10 for the politicians then? Yeah, at, at the minute, uh, a four for me, and, and hopefully an improvement coming, and, and that improvement would need to come damn bloody quickly. Okay, must do better. Naomi, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, um, I suppose um, it was very heavy on strategy. Um, so it outlined things like an anti-poverty strategy, um, a gender strategy, improvements in health and social care strategy. But this is something that we've been telling the politicians for years and years. So um, when the document came out, it had all the right headlines. Um, but whether it was going to materialise as something real and actual is, um, is another question. I think, um, obviously, because the pandemic arose early in 2020 and in around February and March. The test of, of new decade, new approach didn't really come about. But one of the very telling things um, was um, the, the, the ability um, of Sinn Féin and the DUP to do real politic when it came to managing the pandemic. And that may have given you some insight into how they would have managed on these key strategies. Um, you know, that they talked about a new decade, new approach. One of the things, um, like Dooley, was disappointing for me was the absence um, of, of workers' rights being talked about. Um, there were things like, a, a, you know, a forum um, for, for civic society um, to get engaged in, but there was no real um, direct, uh, you know, direct strategy, direct discussion, anything which... Um, which outlined what they were going to do about workers, about trade union rights. Um, as we know, um, anti-trade union legislation is a devolved matter and they have it within their gift in the assembly um, to strengthen trade union rights and do away with the anti-trade union legislation. But that wasn't in the document, even though it was in their remit to do. So I do think the document um, and um, the new decade, new approach was still weighted um, towards business um, and you know things like corporation tax, all of that. Nothing, nothing had changed um, about any of it, and it was kind of it was light um, on 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 workers' rights. But the test of new decade, new approach was by and large overtaken um, by the pandemic. So you're being a wee bit kinder to the politicians on this one, then? No, 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 no. I'll come to that later. I'm getting to that. <laughs> what about you, Alice? How do you think Definitely that? Um, I agree with Dooley and Naomi. Um, the new decade, new approach document policy to me was just another piece of paper, another booklet, because it's really the same shit show. You know, still in house arguing. There's still nothing being done for workers' rights. There's still 
you know, no policies in place for women for for abortions. You know, there's there's just so many things still on the back burner. Um, I think they run out of brasso because they hadn't got enough left to brass their fucking necks because they were getting paid for many years and they were doing nothing and it was like, oh Lord, like we need to get back in here. We need to look like we're doing something. And personally, I don't see any difference has took the spotlight of actually how little they are doing. It has yes. took the spotlight of how little they're doing there, but now we're in a whole completely different ballgame right now. But it's still the same shit, really. Yeah, duly alluded to it um, when he opened up there. The um, What struck me at the time was it took um, an industrial action by nurses. And, you know, when you think that that, that strike in the health service, uh, for the RCN, it was the first time in their history that they'd go on strike for pay parity. It wasn't even for more pay. It was just to be paid the same rate of pay as nurses in the rest of, of the UK. Uh, and... The um, Secretary of State at the time, I can't remember his name, was it Smith, Julian Smith? Or, yeah. Um, he, he, he came on the media and, and more or less, you know, said that, look, um, you're really letting these health workers down if you don't get up with a, a storm and do a day and get yourselves back to work. And I thought to myself, that, I mean, he, what he's doing there, he's, he's endorsing what essentially is a political strike. Now, political strikes mm-hmm. are, are outlawed under the... The legislation, and it'd be great if we could, um, you know, we could repeal that particular piece of legislation. Now, um, health workers were endorsed by Julian Smith. A real opportunity there for the trade unions to sort of um, to to get in there and uh, and to lobby. I know that there's one bill, there's the trade union freedom bill, um, okay. um, being pushed by Jerry Carroll. I don't know how, um, what, what, what where, where that is in the in the big scheme of things, um, but. Hopefully, um, we'll move forward with it. Alice? Yeah, and Mel, when you think back, like last December, we were standing on the picket lanes when the nurses on the Bretton Road outside the Royal Victoria Hospital looking for a pay raise. And fast forward four, more, four months and they're standing outside their front doors clapping. Yeah. Going, you're saving lives, you're keeping our country running. And you're just thinking, you know, these, these women and men who were fighting for a pay raise four months previous, were being clapped, but they still haven't got a pay rate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, yeah uh, Robin Swan um, has decided that they're going to be reimbursed um, for the pay for the, the strike action that took back then. But wouldn't it be nice if they got that in their pay packet every month by way of a pay rise? Because mm-hmm. that's by and large tokenism. Um, and it's just, you know, tinkering around the edges um, of what is, you know, of, of what is fundamental to workers. And that's a decent living wage. Yeah, I think I think what will be interesting as well to see uh, is exactly how much those claps were worth for health workers when they get their 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 their, their payoff for this thing, and uh, because I think we'll find that actually they weren't actually worth that much, um, and I think that issue of tokenism uh, by by politicians and by by other uh, you know community leaders by businesses. Uh, an awful lot of businesses out there, you know, uh, thanking health workers and then and then trying to avoid their tax uh, that, that actually pays them. So I, I think there's a whole a whole plethora of issues attached to 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 that. But I I certainly feel that you know the outcome of the pay negotiations right across the public sector uh, is going to be very significant in showing exactly uh, what politicians think of workers. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but uh, for, for trade unions, I mean, there's been, there's been a, a, a promising precedent set there in terms of what industrial action can achieve. Um, hopefully we'll see more flexing of the muscles um, in the struggles to come. Um, moving on in, in, in the year, um, when we got to March, uh, there was the sort of conclusion, uh, if you could call it that, to the um, Harvey Weinstein issue. Um, where he was finally found guilty and sentenced to 23 years in jail for horrendous crimes against women. Um, and leading up to that, we had a very sort of high-profile Me Too movement, and um, uh, a lot of women were, were coming forward to um, highlight uh, the kind of, of, of abuses um, that, you know, um, and th this can be, be difficult for for men to talk about because, you know, it's one thing saying, you know, it's it's it's, it's terrible that uh, women are treated the way that they're treated and, you know, putting it, putting it down to bad apples. Um, but this really shone a light on, on structural power relations, didn't it? Um, but in, in the long term, is it really going to have any impact and change things on a permanent basis for women? Well, if if I could just um, if I could just come in on that, Mel, I think I think it has, and I know um, the Me Too movement has been criticised actually um, as being sort of celebrity based um, and uh, and maybe emotive in some parts, um, even by people on the left. But I see the Me Too movement as something which fundamentally shifted narratives. So um, we had the conviction. Uh, of Weinstein and uh, a litany um, of others, but it was a real opportunity, and it was an opportunity that was taken to create new narratives. And what what I I mean, how we tend to see the world is 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 through what you know I I like to call the the sort of Euro patriarchy, this white male privileged narrative, and anything outside of that is 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 wrong, um, is different and um, needs to be suppressed. So the Me Too movement wasn't just about women and people telling their stories. It was about shifting, um, you know, shifting, um, sh shifting those narratives and creating, um, creating something that the patriarchy couldn't deal with. So if, if you think back, I always think back to Audre Lorde, who talked about who, whose most famous essay was The Master's House, okay? And she says, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. So there's really no point in trying to bring the patriarchy down from the inside. You might as well piss in the wind as you use the tools of, of the patriarchy to do that. But when the patriarchy were confronted with the detail about women's abuses with real women, you know, with real faces, with real stories, women who were people and weren't behind that sort of anonymity. And, and I suppose it's a bit like women um, who's, uh, women and pregnant people who told their, their stories of abortion. The patriarchy don't know what to do with that because it becomes real, it becomes actual, and it's beyond the stereotypes that the patriarchy have created. So it was, it was, a, it was a culture shift. Um, and, and for me, the Me Too movement was was really deeply political. I think it was it moved things from silence to voice, and I think it moved, uh, you know, it shifted shame to blame as well. So I saw it as pivotal. Um, I saw it as a definite, more than a mood change. I saw it as a as a change 
um, that the patriarchy really didn't know what to do with, and the mainstream as well, because sexual assault, sexual harassment, all those things have been mainstreamed, let's remember. So it was something, and it was also something which was global as well. It was something that um, moved from the local to the global, which is something that we often talk about. So it was a global movement um, and, 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 and one which was, which was hugely important. Yeah, what struck me when it was all going on um, was uh, getting a sense all of a sudden that, y y you know, as a man, you might know people who have suffered this kind of abuse and suffered mm -hmm. suffered it in silence um, and never felt empowered. You know, I have sort of a, a, a sense of, of uh, you, you tackle injustice by confronting it. And sometimes uh, we don't, um, and, and fear for, you know, the privilege of being white and a male, um, that's the easiest thing in the world to say, isn't it? Um, what's your thoughts on it, Dooley? I, I mean, I, I absolutely uh, agree with Naomi's assessment on it. I think it, it, it's quite right and proper that, that men should, should be put in a very uncomfortable position of having to face up to some of the, 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 the facts that we're all aware of and sometimes try try to step around for, for uh, uh, to make things a wee bit easier for ourselves. I think my my concern with it is about the sustainability of, of the campaign and do we end up because we have a, a male-dominated structure uh, within societies, whether it's business, trade unions, politics, uh, you know, that, that we get a, a, a rebound over a period of time and, and, and we don't get... The, the, the actual steps forward and the jumps forward that are needed in order to deal with some of the issues. And I, I have a real concern and it is about, it is about confronting those issues, but it's about continuing to confront those issues. And we have seen examples of legal cases and stuff where there have been significant issues and the reaction of, 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 of large sections of, 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 of society is across social media and the comments that are being made. I mean, there's a long way to go in relation to do this. So, I mean, I, I, one of the concerns I have is around sustainability of the campaign. And I, and I think it needs to be sustained, obviously, but, but it, it is a concern. Okay. Alice? Yeah, 100% agreed, really. And what was going through my head, Mel, you were saying about you might know people who were abused, you know, and that's capital. You also might know people who are abused. The, the, this the Harvey Weinstein case coming to light and, and being put in the public eye and people seeing it and the women speaking up and getting justice is only a, a teardrop in the ocean. It is, you know, there's so many boxes that need to be open. And I'm going, government, you know, so many large companies, so many multi-millionaires, right down to working class people, women are being abused. Um, women are subject to belittlement, um, you know, bullying and right, right down to sexual abuse. And, and the Me Too campaign can't stop. It has to keep going. It has to keep going until all the boxes are opened up wide and, and this has to stop. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to jump forward because I think the, this next issue that I'm going to uh, introduce here is sort of linked uh, in a, a different issue, but... Um, the, in May of, of 2020, we had the, the horrible um, murder of, of uh, George Floyd, um, you know, played out live on our TV screens. 
it was shocking. I mean, um, you know, sitting watching it over and over again, saying, "No, this can't be right." Policeman, of course. Um, the, we all know the story. Um, George Floyd was being uh, confronted by um, uh, police officers. A police officer had his um, his his knee on George Floyd's neck, and George Floyd um, died as a as a result of that. Um, and several policemen were were um, arrested. And it exploded across the United States. Um, and by this stage, of course, the COVID um, epidemic has, uh, pandemic has, has uh, kicked in, um, but it brought people onto the streets uh, and things started to happen right across America and Britain, which I don't think I've seen before in the sense that um, it was, you know, it's a very sort of a common occurrence for black people to be abused by the forces of of law and order in, in uh, the UK and in uh, United States. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it was brought home just how difficult it was to be black in the world. Um, and, you know, when we've seen pictures of, of um, the statues of slave owners being ripped down, you know, and it, it's, I wonder, um, is this a, a, just like the, the the last question about the Me Too movement? Uh, is is this a, a seminal moment for race relations across the world? We'll start with you on that one, Dooley. Look, I, I mean, I agree, Mel. The reaction to 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 that, you know, those terrible events has been phenomenal. The establishment of the Black Lives Matter movement and. And I, but the point you make is absolutely correct. This is not the first occurrence, and it wasn't the last occurrence in relation to 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 the treatment of black people in in uh, um, in America. I think the the reaction to it again was a challenge to to uh, to par, um, and there. The reaction to that has been a, a a full campaign from their 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 allies in the media in order to challenge that. At every uh, every particular stage, um, but I do think it 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 is a turning point. Uh, I mean, if we looked even to here, we uh, we had rallies in support of Black Lives Matter, and the reaction was that uh, the PSNI uh, went and uh, the Crown Prosecution Services lodged fines against the protesters, which was absolutely scandalous. And, um, and, and I, I, as much as that was then subsequently dealt with, it, it took months for that to be dealt with. Um, so, you know, our, our, our structures here are very much, and our structures around the world are very much uh, geared to those in power. And, and any challenge to that power is resisted. And, uh, and again, the issue around sustainability and the need to continue with those campaigns is critical to that. And there is, I agree with you, there, there are links between all these various campaigns and all these various issues, because it's all a challenge to power and, and we need to join them up and we need to, those people that are supporting one campaign need to see themselves in these other campaigns and, and, and pull them together and continue to challenge them. Naomi? I, I just want to sort of um, dovetail in on what Dooley said there, because I think you've hit on something really important. And that is the absolute need to build social justice networks of people. Um, and a social justice movement. And I think the Black Lives Matter um, protests highlighted that. Um, one of the things that Alliance for Choice did, um, because we were involved in organizing the BL one of the BLM protests in Belfast, 
um, was when the fines were issued. Um, and I know Alice was key in this, was, was one of the people um, at the centre of this and, and heavily involved in organising it. Um, but we organised a public campaign, a donation campaign, to collect money for the fines. And the response was overwhelming. The response from the public was overwhelming. Um, and that was hugely, hugely encouraging. So much so that we actually had money left over. Um, and it was donated to migrant um, groups and organisations. Um, and they were, you know, um, they were um, extremely grateful for that because they're not well funded, as everyone knows, if they're, if they're funded at all. But um, there was a real um, sense of solidarity there um, and a real intersection um, when it came to the solidarity because this oppression, whether it's women's rights, reproductive rights, abortion rights, racism, um, whatever it is, the oppression comes from the same place. It comes from that same point, um, you know, of um, that, that I made earlier, comes from that white supremacist, um, capitalist, um, heteronormative um, point. And that's, and that's something which um, social justice movements can expose um, and can challenge if, if they come together um, on it. One of the things that the policing board um, they issued a report when, when they examined um, how the fines were dealt with by the PSNI. And one of the things that the report led with was that the, the fines were wrong, um, but the policing board said it damaged the reputation of the police service of Northern Ireland. Now, I don't give a toot too much about the police service of Northern Ireland's reputation, I have to say, and I think that's the wrong thing to lead with. Um, what it should have said <laughs> what it should have said was um, this was wrong um, because people have the right to gather and protest as they did lawfully against racism. Um, so again, even the report um, was not getting to the heart of, of the issue in, in, in a real way, which is racism. Let's not forget that. It is racism. Alice, you want to come in there? Then? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the depth of of that fellow was unreal. Um, and the reason why it was so worldwide was because of the times we're living in where technology and someone was able to record it. There's thousands of black people killed every single year in America and around the world and it was all down to racism. And the only reason that was really in the public eye was because it was technology and we were able to see it. Back to the Black Lives Matter rally here in Belfast and in Derry, as Naomi said, Lance for Choice put out a call they, we received £22,500 in on donations to help cover the cost of the fines for anyone that was fined at a Black Lives Matter rally. Now, they were organised to a T. It was during the middle of a lockdown. Everybody was socially distanced, had their masks on. They, if you were in a family bubble, two people were able to stand together. There was one instance, and I was speaking to the solicitor who was dealing with all these fines with me, that there was a girl and a fellow standing beside each other because they were couple. The girl was a black girl and the fellow was a white man. And the PSNI officer went over and issued a fine to the black girl and did not issue a fine to the white man. And he walked away. Now that's going to court and, and they want to know why because there's racism right away in your face, not to, not to mention misogyny. Uh, you know, so a black girl gets fined standing three inches away from her partner and he doesn't get fined. And it's because we're at the Black Lives Matter rally. So, I mean, you answer that question, man. 
Yeah, well, it's it's extraordinary, and and um, the, another thing that struck me about that about that campaign um, globally, and watching it being played out in the news programs, um, was the fact that that um, racism was being laid bare for what it is, um, and uh, you know, you had uh, people who I mean. Uh, you know, black TV celebrities coming on and, you know, saying, you know, you know, white people don't understand or don't know what I had to get through, you know, to, you know, just because I'm I'm famous doesn't mean that I don't get stopped in the street and, you know, I, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, but the the um the issue was the fact that that when people were confronted with the issue of race, it was clear that the education system is institutionally racist as well. You know, when people started to, to um, pull down statues of, of um, 18th century slave traders in, in Britain um, and start to, you know, ask, I mean, who is this person? Why are the streets named after this person's statues all over the place? Um, and then find out that they're, they, you know, they made their money on the slave trade um, right across uh, uh, Britain. And the the sense of people saying, why do we not know about that? So the nature of empire and imperialism in its sense, um, that sense has been laid bare as well. Um, and I, I would imagine that you would hopefully see changes to standard educational curriculums. But for organisations such as ourselves, Trademark, in the sense of the education that we've been providing down through the years, again, our... Uh, um, anti-sectarian stance has been vindicated because for years we were saying, you know, people were saying to us as an organization, not anti-sectarian, you keep describing yourselves as anti-sectarian, it's a bit confrontational, would you not you know, think of some sort of softer approach? Um, and, you know, we're saying, no, no, that's exactly what we are, and that's part of the problem, that people are afraid to talk about it, or people are looking past it or around it, um, and they're not dealing with the issue. Uh, so the sense that Black Lives Matter has broken through that and is shining the light on exactly what is the problem vindicates our anti-sectarian stance here in the North as well, I think. But, um, we're going to take a step back because, I mean, the, the, the George Floyd um, case was sort of linked uh, to, the, to the issues of, of the Me Too. But in the middle of all of that, we had the onset of, of um, the uh, COVID pandemic. We were hearing rumors really at the start of the year what was happening in China. And, you know, we were sort of hoping that, um, you know, it would be blown out of all proportion that it wouldn't get to us. We were having many a laugh and a joke in the office, Alice Wardwell, about washing our hands and singing, you know, what song you should sing when you're washing your hands and all. But uh, it's not so funny um, anymore. And for very, very quickly around the end of March and into April, it became real for a lot of us. Um, and what were the characteristics of of uh, the Tory handling of that? Do you think, Naomi? Well, um, disastrous, <laughs> um, given the the death rates um, in the in the UK um, compared with uh, the, the the rest of um, the rest of Europe and and indeed the world. Um, I think the COVID was was something that um, exposed the inequalities. Um, that that would deal with. I, I mean, I even um, I even hesitate to use the word inequalities because what they are are, are social injustices. 
that we in the trade union movement and on the, on the left have been talking about for you know for for years and years and it's kind of um it may be a bit crass you know to say you, you know you want to do the the told you so dance because these things um are are, are something that we you know that, that we know about so if you look at how covid affected people so um it affected working class people the most it affected people in terms of um, not just the um, the contagion itself, but the death rates. Um, it affected people from Bame communities, that's Black, Asian, minority and ethnic communities. Um, it has now become a gendered issue as well, um, because women um, who encountered difficulties during lockdown um, were women who were in coercive relationships, um, you know, trying to flee domestic violence with their families and unable to do so. Women who were able to, um, unable to access contraception and abortions. Um, and of course, working class people by and large who didn't have savings to fall back on, um, to use, um, who couldn't, you know, um, opt for a career change as the ridiculous um, Tory publicity campaign um, that was ruled out showing, showing a ballet dancer, a child ballet dancer, um, advised people in the arts to do. So, and of course, people with disabilities as well, um, who were forced um, to, um, to shield because of their vulnerabilities. But there was a strange paradox existed um, within the pandemic as well. And I think it gave rise to things um, which weren't positive because of the pandemic and because of what we were dealing with. Um, Sorry, I just lost you there for a wee second. Can you see me again? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're with us. Um, so we had things coming to the fore, like health and safety. So health and safety, which the Tories previously referred to as red tape or cumbersome, um, and you know something which has been attacked by the Tories and minimised for years and years, some suddenly becomes front and centre and is saving people's lives. Um, you have this strange um, sort of development of the Tories taking advice from trade unions, you know, the, the, um, the TUC and, and ICTU suddenly becoming front and centre um, and very much at the table, you know, when it came to restrictions, how they should look, people working from home um, and, and all those things. Um, so they are things, I think, which the trade union movement really, really need to build upon. So we need to build upon those for purposes of membership, of organisation, um, of training. And we, the, the trade union movement need to see opportunities um, within that. And, and just like Dooley and Alice have said, that we can't lose the momentum around Me Too. You can't lose the momentum around Black Lives Matter. We can't lose the momentum around the exposure of the social injustices. Now, the Tories' memory will be very, very short because, as we know, we can't, you know, they're, they're not saying that they're going to suddenly pay health workers, you know, what they deserve to be paid. You know, Rishi Sunak is already making noises. It's, it's, it's going to be, you know, um, we're, we're, going to, we're going to see more austerity. We're going to see more restraint. Um, but... One thing that um, that I was reading today, um, which was which was very interesting, was the comparison between the bank bailout of the crisis in two thousand and eight, compared to um, what the UK have provided by way of fiscal packages um, for for the pandemic. And let's just say the difference is stark in that the bank bailout far exceeds 
um, any bailout, as it's as it's referred to, um, of of the pandemic. And the reality is as well, there, there's there's an ethical issue at the heart of this too, because the bank bailout was done because of um, because of the the misuse of money. It was done intentionally. Um, and the investments, the corrupt investments and the hidden investments, um, you know, were, were what we paid for as, as citizens of, of the wealthy. This pandemic is about people. It's about saving lives. It's about society, keeping society together. So the 350 billion um, that's come, you know, by way of the fiscal package really doesn't compare to the 1.2 trillion um, that was provided for by way of direct money and indirectly by the UK government when it came to the bank bailout. So let's not forget that. And it was the wealthy who benefited. It was the wealthy who benefited from the bank bailout too. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, at the start we were talking about the new decade, new approach and the, the limits to the, you know, the fact that there was no budgets attached to any of the, the proposals. And then, you know, a, a few months later, all of a sudden, um, it appears that there is a magic money tree um, and um, money is available. Um, the other thing, Dooley, was um, we experienced, and I know certainly in, in the area that you and I operate, um, a, a, a sort of um, an, a, an outpouring of really an, a spontaneous industrial action. I mean, there were, there were people who were, weren't waiting about for industrial action ballots to walk off the lanes and say, I'm not prepared to die from a, from a boss. You know, I'd like to live past this. Yeah, look, I, I think the one thing I agree with Naomi, it was a complete mess from a from a from a, a government response perspective. Well, that government was at Stormont or Westminster, but but uh, I I think as well what it did show is it showed it it, it shone a, a significant light on the government policy and uh, in that there's one rule for the rich and there's one rule for the rest of us. And what we had in in uh, in uh, meat plants and, and and other factories. We had situations where the livelihood of, of the owner was put in front of the life of the worker, um, and, and and clearly and with complete disregard uh, and and with no concern of any consequence was the livelihood of the owner put in front of the life of the worker, and and um, it it was only after. Um, significant efforts by trade unions in those factories and by uh, trade unions engaged with politicians and others uh, to try and shine a light on this, that there was actually some progress made. I mean, and, uh, you know, factory owners were forced to buy uh, PPE and other uh, uh, equipment for, for workers uh, months and months after we had COVID cases and, and a wealth of COVID cases uh, uh, across this area. Um, I also think, and just on one of the points you raised earlier, I mean, the reaction uh, to COVID by governments in America, in the UK, in Brazil, in Sweden, and its approach in relation to herd immunity, uh, and you compare those to, 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 to governments elsewhere, in New Zealand and Vietnam, uh, it's, 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 it's stark in relation to um, the, the simple fact that the economy and, and the livelihood of the rich was, was placed in front of, of all else. Um, and that still hasn't changed because, as Naomi said, there we have the Chancellor coming out and saying, oh, I am, by the way, guess who's paying for this? Um, and so that will continue to be the case unless we fight against it. And I think that it's critically important that we do continue to fight against this. COVID isn't over. I, I, I have to say uh, we have the announcement 
that there's likely to be an extended lockdown leading into the new year. I think that's very welcome. Uh, because it will protect people, it will protect lives. And, and um, I, I think that, that, that government policy has taken a very long time getting to a point where it's there's even some semblance of, of, of parity between the lives of, of people and and, uh, and the livelihoods of the rich. And I think, uh, you know, we should continue to push on that uh, for, for a very long time. Um, Alice, you were really at the at the coalface during the, the the most difficult parts of of, of the pandemic in the early t- early days. Yeah, well, um, March and April was quite stressful. Right, still is stressful to be honest with you. Um, you know, I I think it was complete herd immunity. I think the the government did not care one iota about us, our vulnerable members of society, our old people. You know, car homes, you know, I mean, they did not care that the very beginning, uh, arrest of us, comrades, <laughs> they, they basically did not care. They did not have anything in place. They didn't have a plan of action in place. It was basically, you know, wash your hands, stay away from each other. But then you've seen on the media that he's starting with no mask on, he's speaking to people, he's in different meetings. Um, so, see, at the very beginning, well, in April when we were going around and everywhere was shut down and workers weren't getting to their office and the cleaning, we had to uh, furlough a few of our cleaning members. Refuges were women and women's aid refuges. When we see the impact that this was having on women, when we seen the impact that it had having on people who were trying to get to work and who needed to get to work and maybe even their companies were closing down, not making redundancies. So people didn't know how to live. And then if you go for uh, universal credit or for it's taken 68 weeks. And, and not only are you going through a real scare, life-threatening disease going around the whole world, you lose your job, you've no money to feed your kids. I mean, I've never seen so much cooperation build up in the first three months after the lockdown where food banks were, people were delivering food to people who needed them with working class communities. Um, you know, going to old people who needed their medication picked up, going to the chemist for them, bring it there. You know, the cooperation that was built up for the first three, four months, and still ongoing, showed me that working class people work for each other, and that the rich and the ones in government could not give one flying fuck. And, and that's my honest opinion. They could not give a flying fuck about anybody in the working class. And until we ourselves start to fight for what is right, then... It's just going to continue. We're going to go into 2021 and it's going to be the same shit show. Okay. Um, I, just, yeah. I just wanted to say, I think that's a really important point Alice has made. That redefinition of what an essential worker and a key worker is. It is a cleaner. It is a carer. It is somebody who works in health. It is someone who works in education. Um, it is someone um, you know who, who works in retail and is, um, you know, is, is the delivery driver who's delivering the food. Um, or the person at the checkout. And we can't lose sight of that. But the other thing that we can't lose sight of as well is, for example, Jeff um, Bezos, who's the, the head of Amazon, his fortune has um, has increased by something like close to 50 billion uh, since, since March. Um, the chief executive of Microsoft, whose name I can't remember and I don't really care um, what it is. Um, his fortune has has rocketed as well. The owners of Zoom that we're on now, their fortune um, has has you know has increased by something like like thirty billion. Um, but 
when I was talking earlier about, about shifting the narrative, that's definitely something the trade unions have to get behind. Who is essential in this society um, when it comes to decency, when it comes to the fabric of society and who holds it together. And I think that's, um, that's something the trade unions and those of us on the left and movements in general can, can really get behind. Just one more quick point, Mel, I know you want to shut me up. <laughs> but I think one of the things that the COVID exposed was the fact that policy, the, the policy that Dooley was talking about earlier and the law aren't enough. A rights-based framework is not enough anymore. We have to have a justice framework. So if you look at something like the statutory minimum, when it comes to statutory sick pay, lots of disabled people because they had to shield were forced onto £95 a week. Who can survive, let alone a person with a disability, on £95 a week? But they were forced to do it. They couldn't go to work, otherwise they would have been breaking the law. So is that £95 a week, um, do they have the right to do it? Yeah, they do. That's fulfilling the right. But it doesn't make it just. Okay, so and, and, and what it's saying to us as a movement, we need to rely on ourselves as a movement and not just the law and not just policy and not just decision makers and not just government. And, and I think that binds us as a movement. Okay, you just stopped just before I muted you there. You know? <laughs> are you going to edit me after? <laughs> uh, I'm only joking. No, we're, we, we are uh, coming close to the end because we, we've been... Uh, chatting away for 45 minutes now um, and we didn't even get to talk about um, I suppose the person that provided us with some comic relief uh, mm -hmm. at various points um, uh, during the year uh, over in America, Mr Trump. I'm not even calling him fucking Donald anymore. That's good, Mel, because he's not worth talking about. Yeah, uh, Absolutely. but um, yeah, I, I think I'm just, uh, uh, I suppose, a word on uh, Biden. What do people think, very quickly, um, a Biden pre uh, president? Well, Biden's, no, Biden's no, uh, no protector of the working class, not by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's, uh, he might not just be as mad as what Trump has been, and, uh, but in some ways, in some ways, that, that he's going to be more predictable on his, 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 his position on the lacks of, of Palestine, his position, his economic position on a number of issues. It's, it's incredibly right-wing. And what was incredibly funny during the elections was trying to classify the likes of Biden and Kamala Harris as socialists when they'd be right of Johnson if they were in politics over here. I mean, it was just unbelievable, you know? Okay, listen, I'm going to round up and I'm going to ask um, uh, everyone, uh, and Alice alluded to it there in, in her remarks in, in the last segment, um, is there any is there any sense of hope for 2021? Um, in a sentence, if you can, Naomi. <laughs> a sentence? <laughs> well, you know, one or two sentences. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I I think there is, and um, I I think um, I think it was Angela Davis who said that optimism is a political act. And you have to act as if it were possible to change the world and you have to do it all the time. Um, so I think we have to we have to stay optimistic because there is a vaccine um, on the way. I think there are lessons to be learned as well from the pandemic. And as, as Alice um, said earlier, it has um, it has bound people and communities, especially working class communities together. And it's given 
um, you know, it's given that that sense of, of, of community. And I think that that is something which is deeply empowering. And I don't mean to be twee, you know, when, when I say that. But um, working class people uh, have, have always been a solution um, to the, the, the problems that capitalism have, pr have presented us with. So let's, let's hold that thought as we move into 2021. Very good, Dooley. Yeah, I think th th there are reasons clearly to be optimistic. I, I think that in dealing with COVID, uh, large areas of the community, as, as Alice has said, have rallied together and have shown. And I think that the trade union movement needs to, to be heavily involved in that process and to assist. Uh, and, 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 uh, but I, I think if I had one, one wish for 2021 is that I wish Jerry Carroll all the success in his trade union freedom bill, because I think that um, the, the, the easier it is for workers to react uh, when their livelihoods are put at threat, then the better it is for everybody. Great. Alice? Yeah, um, 2021, we're going to be doing exactly the same thing we did in 2020. Um, we're just going to be working away for the workers, chipping away, creating more cooperatives, and fighting all the capitalist factors that we can. Yeah, I mean, I sort of coined a phrase a number of years ago, uh, life is struggle. I mean, you accept that, that um, you know, this is your life. Um, it, it's not so daunting, you know. <laughs> That's just the way it's going to be. More of the same is right. Um, it was just getting more people involved in it. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on this evening. Um, the chat has been uh, lively and um, very inspiring. Um, and possibly we'll get together again in 2021 and talk about some other issues affecting our class. So thanks very much and a happy new year to um, you all. And a happy new year to all our listeners out there in podcast land. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Up the workers and slang of foil. <laughs>